my plan was to finish Ephesians chapter 1 today, and we had re- kind of mentioned that last week. And as it turns out, I don't think we're going to get through the whole thing. And so that works schedule-wise. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, but for this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 1. Um, we'll read 15 to 23, but we'll kind of work 20 to 23, those last four verses together. And I was going through a lot of scripture this week, preparing for this message, a lot of really, really good scripture. And I just have to say that I love Jesus. And looking at everything that he's done, everything the Father has done through him is absolutely stunning. And if you just take five minutes to read, ten minutes to read, you will see some of this amazing truth, the magnificent reality of what God has done through Christ for you and that's available to us. It's unbelievable. This week, like I said, I had the privilege of studying these last four verses of Ephesians 1. And sometimes when we hear the word study, we think kind of academics and you're preparing to write a paper so you're gathering information. But as I was going through this this week, it wasn't that much study. (laughs) It was a lot of thanksgiving and praise for what God has done through Christ. And that's my goal this morning. As we come together, as we open God's word once again, I want to encourage you and exhort you and remind you of what Christ has done, what God has done in Christ, and that should produce in us an attitude of praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. So that's my goal, to lay out those verses. Now normally I'll start my sermon with an illustration or something to kind of help us understand what's going on in the text. And as I was looking at this this week and thinking, okay, this sermon's called The Demonstration of God's Power. We're going to see God's power displayed in three different areas. And I thought, you know, I think it'd be better this week just to get into it. There's no good analogy for this. I mean, I'm sure there are. I'm not saying there isn't. But it is so good that I don't want to cheapen it by comparing it to something else. So today we're going to jump right into it. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And follow along as I read, starting in verse 15. This is the last section here in Ephesians 1. We've been working through for several weeks this great chapter. And so follow along as I read, starting in verse 15 from Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we are thankful for the week that you have given to us. Maybe it was more difficult for some, maybe more joyful for some, but Father, we're all here, and so I pray that your word would have its intended effect this morning. 
I feel weak. I feel not overly qualified to deliver this message, Lord. It's an amazing message of what you have done in Christ. And so I just pray that you take me out of the way. Lord, don't let me get between your people and your word. But I pray that what is spoken would be heard through the power of the Spirit as life-giving and life-changing. Lord, your word is the only thing that has power. I have no power in myself, but you do. And your word does, and your spirit applies the truth. So, Father, would that be the case here this morning at Grace Bible Church? Would we open your word together and see wondrous things from your law? That's our request. And we make it to a God who is all-powerful and willing and ready and able to answer. So, God, would you do it this morning? And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So last week, when we looked at the previous few verses here, we saw Paul in his prayer ask God to open the spiritual eyes of the churches at Ephesus, right? He asked for their eyes to be opened so that they would know three different things. The hope to which they were called, the inheritance that's waiting, and the greatness of God's power. And now, he continues in this prayer, but he's not making a request. He is telling us through prayer what the demonstration of God's power is. Remember last week he said, okay, he wants us to know the power, but where we left off, we didn't know what that was. And so that's what we're going to look at this week, this display of God's power. He continues now in his prayer, and he uses the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as an illustration to tell us what this power is and how it is at work. Last week I spoke about some of the displays of God's power in nature, in the created world. We can look around and see that God is powerful. But this example of what the Father did through Jesus goes far beyond anything, any display that we can see. I broke this section up now into three different points. So we're going to look at 20, 21, 22, and 23 over the next two weeks. It's going to go into three points, and like I said, we're going to only get through two of them this week, and so we'll finish next week. Now, next week, Tyler Eason was supposed to come and preach with us, and he had a scheduling change and some things going on, so he's going to come on the 13th now, and so this will be good. We can consecutively finish this chapter next week, but we're excited to have Tyler come. Tyler's a dear friend. He's a pastor at Northwest Bible Church. We're excited to have him join us. So for today, here's the way I've broken it up. Number one, we're going to see God's power in Jesus. Number two, we're going to see God's power in the heavens. And number three, next week, we'll see God's power on earth. These are all demonstrations of God's power. So let's look at number one, God's power in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was a foundational teaching in the early church. If you read Paul's letters many times in various places, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he goes as far as to tell the church in Corinth that if there is no resurrection, that their faith is in vain and they're still dead in their sins. Remember from chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians? Paul makes the connection between the forgiveness of sin, the confidence that we have that that's taken care of, and the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, you're still dead in your sin. This is a big deal. 
That's, I was reminded as I was looking through this, the importance of including the resurrection of Jesus as we articulate the gospel. We usually do pretty good at saying we're sinful, we need a Savior, Christ is that Savior, here's what God has done. But the resurrection of Jesus sealed it. The work that he did on the cross was confirmed and the seal of approval was put on that by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's the the pinnacle, the high point of redemptive history when God in his power raises Jesus from the dead. This is what we as a church and as most Baptist churches symbolize through believers' baptism. Okay, we talk about the resurrection in correspondence to baptism, and here's how that plays out, at least in our church. When you go under the water, it's symbolic of you dying to the old way of life. When you come up out of the water, it's symbolic of Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection that we as his children are guaranteed to have one day. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too... Christians might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is why I think union with Christ is, if not the most, one of the most important doctrines that we can know as Christians. You've heard me say this. What is union with Christ? It means what happens to Jesus happens to us. If you turn away from your sin, put your trust in Christ, everything that's true of him becomes true of you. And if he was raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead. Paul is laboring to show these new believers, these churches in Ephesus, that the power of God, the true God, is not only something that happened in the past by raising Christ from the dead, but that God is supreme over all other gods and has power to raise them as well. The area of Ephesus was heavily influenced by all of these false gods, idol worship, all this kind of stuff. There was a lot of superstition and they were very entrenched in this. So Paul comes along and says, this is what the true God does. This is the power that he has over you and over all the powers of darkness, which we'll get into here in a moment. But the hope that we have is that as Christians, as those who have the Spirit of God in us, there is more than what's going on right now in this life. There is a resurrection coming. Romans 11. Nope, Romans 8, verse 11. Sometimes I read stuff backwards. It happens. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what's he saying? That's every Christian, right? We've talked about this. If you are a child of God, you have His Spirit in you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will what? Also give life to your mortal body. What other religion promises this? This is why it's so disappointing to me when when I see pastors and churches or whatever focus so much attention on now and what's going on here and let's get a good life here, let's do the best we can. Yes, that's so inconsequential in the big scheme of things. We have been guaranteed a resurrection. God demonstrated his power in Jesus by raising him from the dead and if we are children of God, we have the same future. 
So let's live in that light. Let's live in that light. The promise of salvation in Jesus is not only for this life. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hoped, we are most to be pitied. We should be hopeless. We should be sorrowful if there's nothing coming after this. But as it stands in Scripture, there is. There is a resurrection. There is a newness of life that's coming. So, let me ask a question. How does the resurrection give us hope? How does it accomplish this? Why should we look at this demonstration of God's power in Jesus and and take hope, take confidence, take comfort from this? There's two things in this world that you and I cannot control. More than that, I'm going to say two. Two things. Death and evil. We're held bondage by these two things. We are mortal in our bodies. We cannot overcome death. There's so many people who are so concerned about what's going on in our world and there's viruses and there's sicknesses and whatever and basically what they're trying to do is cure death. They want to live forever when they don't understand that the hope of that is not in this life. We can't overcome death in our mortal bodies. Second, we're fallen. We're sinful. We can't overcome evil on our own. But Jesus can. And he did. God in Christ conquered death. He conquered evil and therefore is able to save his children from both. This is why it's such a big deal. When we lose someone that we love, when someone dies, how is it that Paul can say as Christians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope? What does that mean? It's because he wants us to know the hope that we were called to. This is what we talked about last week with the hope of our calling. It's a hope that if God demonstrated his power by raising Jesus from the dead, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, like Paul said in Romans 8, will also do the same for you and I if we are in Christ. This is not a promise for those who don't know Jesus. And this is my call. This is what I want to be communicated today. If you want the hope of this, put your faith in Jesus. Stop messing around. There's no day like today to say, you know what, I'm done trying on my own. I hear about this hope. I hear about this future. I hear about this inheritance. I don't know that I have it. Well, you know what, you can know. Don't leave today without finding out. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to me. We would love to help you. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves the power of God and demonstrates his sovereign power to also raise us from the dead. God's power in Jesus. Next, number two in this passage, we're seeing God's power in the heavens. God's power in the heavens. Paul goes on now in Ephesians 1 to tell us what happened after Christ was raised from the dead. He was raised, and now what happens? He was seated at the right hand of the Father. We read this. Let's look at our text again, get this in context. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
If you're familiar with your Bible, you probably recognize this language from other places, this seating, this subjecting, things being put under his feet. Psalm 110 is the most commonly quoted or referred to psalm in the New Testament. And this, I think, Paul telling us about what happened with Christ, that he was raised, that he was seated, is in fulfillment to what was prophesied in Psalm 110, some thousand years earlier by David. Listen to Psalm 110, this is the opening verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, God, says to David's Lord, who is Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, of course, God is a spirit, right? The Father does not have a physical body, a being. And so when we read that the Messiah is seated at his right hand, we need to make a couple of clarifications, kind of get this right. We should understand this seated at his right hand language as enthronement, as position, prominence. The enthronement language, the seating language, first of all, shows the highest honor that God can give to his son. Second thing is this seating language. Again, if you are doing the Leviticus study. We've been jumping Leviticus to Hebrews quite a bit. It shows the finality of what Jesus did, that there's nothing left to do. He seated, it was done. One of the things that we've been reading in Leviticus is about the priests and the role of the priests and how every day they stood in the temple or in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. Every day they were offering sacrifices. Day after day after day after month after year they stood there. Offering these sacrifices. When we get to the book of Hebrews then, the writer makes this connection and again quotes from Psalm 110 and says this in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see the contrast? Every priest stands daily. Christ makes one offering and sits down because it's done. It's finished. Why do you think Jesus on the cross says, it is finished? What is he referring to? The work, everything that he came to accomplish was finished in that moment. He says, it is finished. And the Father is pleased with that sacrifice. There's no reason for Jesus to stay dead. All of the work has been done. And in power, he raises him from the dead, guaranteeing our own resurrection. That's what's going on in this passage. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Contrast the old system with new, with Jesus. So when we read this seated language, it's in contrast to what was going on in the sacrificial system. There's no longer a need for that. The daily, ongoing, continual sacrifices, Christ accomplished all of it. And because of that, he is symbolically seated because it's done. The seating at the right hand of the Father 
is also an act of exaltation for the Son. It's helping us to understand who and what Jesus is and has done. As I said, I looked at a bunch of other passages this week in preparation for this, and one of them was Philippians 2, which I hope is familiar to you. If it's not, get reading after the sermon. Don't start reading it right now. But it's so good, and this is what it says. Philippians 2, verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, what happened? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The work that Christ done was so complete and so perfect that God the Father says, yes, I am pleased and I am happy and I am satisfied and therefore sit down, you're done. Everything is finished. What a Savior. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one in the universe who is worthy of this kind of exaltation. Mankind has done some pretty spectacular things by the grace of God. Think of some of the things that have been built, some of the advances, some of the technology. On June 30th of this year, My medical team took a kidney out of one of my best friends and put it in my body, and it works. (laughs) Are you kidding me? There are amazing things that happen in the world, and yet none of them are deserving of the exaltation that Jesus received because of his work. None of them. And there never will be. Next week, we're going to look more at this name that Jesus was given and the eternality of the name. It's everlasting. There will never be a contender for this title of King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Jesus earned it by his sacrifice and his obedience, and it will never be taken away from him. He is forever the king, our king, my king. So what about the enemies? being made a footstool. We saw this in Psalm 110, saw it again in Hebrews, but do we see that in Ephesians 1, in our text for this morning? I think we do. I think that as Paul goes on now in verse 21, we continue to see God's power displayed in the heavens, and this is seen by Jesus being put far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In other words, they are placed under him. These would be the enemies that were promised to be put under his feet in Psalm 110. We're seeing the fulfillment of the promise. As I said before, the the area around Ephesus was very superstitious. They were heavily influenced by these false gods. It's all they'd ever known. And there was a large amount of fear and anxiety about how these gods would act towards them. And the priests of these temples would use naturally occurring things to frighten the people. A big storm would come through and they'd say, ooh, gods aren't happy, you better do this and this and this. Look, look, look what they're doing. They would manipulate things to build fear into people. Paul lists out these different things that have been subjected to Jesus, not because he can't decide on which one will be best, like is it powers? No, that's not good. Maybe authorities, yeah, I'll write that. No, no, he's listing these things out because he wants the churches and us to see the absolute sovereignty of Jesus over every power, everything 
in the heavenly places. Every false god, every spiritual force, every other spirit Christ has authority over. Notice that Paul doesn't deny the existence of these things. Right? He doesn't say, um, I know you think that there's stuff going on in the world, but, but let me tell you, you don't need to worry about that. That's just, it's just kind of your own mind playing tricks on you. No, he, he acknowledges that this exists. When we get to the end of the book, in chapter 6, we're going to read that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and the host of darkness in the heavenly places. But these are the hosts of darkness that have been subjected to King Jesus. Paul is very aware that the devil is alive and active and that he seeks at every turn to destroy and deceive and distract and divide. And haven't we seen division this year? It's not God's work. By Paul telling them this about Jesus, that that everything has been put in subjection under Jesus, he's saying, yes, There are spiritual forces at work. But Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, by the power that God displayed in him, has authority and has conquered all of those. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. All of it. And what a comfort for us. And what a comfort for those who were saved out of idol worship, out of fear and superstition. What a wonderful display of God's power in the heavenly places. This was true for the church at Ephesus, that they need to know this. And it's true for us as well. The spiritual realm is alive and active, brothers and sisters. This is not something that was just happening in the Bible times. It's kind of antiquated and we don't need to worry about it anymore last Saturday night on Saturday evenings I've been going into the office just for an hour or two and reading and praying and kind of getting ready for Sunday and I had a really really good time of prayer last Sunday I was reading the text and getting ready for the next day and I went home and went to bed and a couple hours later I woke up and I still don't know if I can explain what happened I just felt heavy and almost oppressive Wait on me. I woke Tiff up and we prayed together. I reached out to a couple of you and I know you prayed for me too and came in Sunday morning not really knowing what to expect. And as far as I know, I believe that that was a spiritual matter. That was a spiritual attack that was going on. Remember what I preached on last week? That there's hope in Jesus? That you don't have to be hoping in this world and all of the mess that's going on, but there's hope in Christ Satan doesn't want that message preached. He doesn't want you to know that there's hope in Christ, that there's an eternity for you, that no matter what happens here, you can have confidence in the goodness of God. He hates you. He hates me. He hates the gospel. He hates our church. And he'll do everything he can to stop it and slow it down. This is why I ask you often to pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for the pastors that you know in your life. Because they're at the front lines of this thing, hitting it head on, delivering a message of truth and hope which is absolutely contrary to what our enemy would have us say. It's very real. And I know from firsthand experience, I am so thankful that Christ has authority over these things. 
We don't just have to wriggle here in misery and pain and go, oh, I wish there was a solution. There is. Christ has conquered everything. It's all done. We sing a song. In fact, we're singing it later this morning. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I stand. That's our only hope. That's what we're going to see Paul get into at the end of the book. How do you stand against these things? By being in God's word, by being in fellowship with his people, and constantly in prayer. That's how. When you're attacked, when you feel the heaviness of those spiritual forces at work against you, take heart. Remember this passage, that all authority has been given to Jesus and every rule and power and dominion have been put under his feet. That's the hope that we have. Now there's one thing that needs to be said before we move on. I was thinking about this this week. We need to remember what's going on in these first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul is telling us what God has done. He's telling us where we are positionally. For example, in chapter 2, verse 6, he's going to say that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's where we are. And yet, right now, we're not seated there. Right? He's telling us where we are in God's mind, in a, in a spiritual position, we're there. And yet, we're not actually there. So there's a tension that we feel between what we read to be true of us and the life that we actually are living. So we can read things like, he put all things under his feet, and we say, awesome. And yet, when we look at the world, we think about our lives, we don't see everything yet obeying this authority, being put in subjection. Yep, everything's been subjected. What about cancer? just talked to a friend of mine yesterday who was going through his second round of chemotherapy. Has that been subjected? What about relational things? What about interference? What about, I mean, you just fill in the list. There's a tension that we feel. A couple of verses earlier, Paul told us of the hope to which we have been called. And hope implies something that we do not yet possess. I think he's carrying on here to help us see not only what God did in the past by displaying his power in Jesus and displaying his power in the heavenly places by subjecting all things to Christ, but he's giving us a glimpse of what is going to come. Remember in Romans, Paul said, hope that is seen is not hope. I don't hope my Bible is on the pulpit. I see it. I know it's here. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So I want to address that tension. That while we read in the Bible that everything has been subjected, Christ has all power and authority, we still live in a world that has also been subjected to futility and sin and brokenness. That doesn't mean that God is powerless to do anything. That means that it should produce in us a longing for what's coming. Paul's giving us a taste in Ephesians. 
He's telling us that there is something coming. There is a time coming when Christ ushers his kingdom in. Sin and death and darkness will be thrown into the pit forever and Christ will establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where our hope is. That's where the hope is. Christ's victory is certain. And yet the final subjection of everything will not happen until death is defeated, thrown into the pit, and Christ reigns. That's what we hope for. That's the tension that we live in, knowing that it's sure, knowing that it's secure, and yet longing for it. It's where we are. So how do you live in that? How do you live in that? We're going to apply this next week as we end the whole section. But for today, I would just say that we live in the tension by faith. You live by faith. Faith in what we do not yet grasp, but that we know to be true because we trust God's word. And we read that, yep, everything's been put under his feet yet it doesn't really look like it. Don't lose confidence. Don't lose heart. Don't look at the craziness of our world and say, this is out of control. I don't know what God's doing, but he's certainly not subjecting everything. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And one day, it's going to happen. Totally and finally. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that to happen. There's a few other things that we need to see in in the end of this chapter. And this is why we're not going to finish today. But we need to see the significance of Jesus' name. The name that is above every name. What does that mean? Why, Why is that a significant thing that Paul includes? Like I said, I want to look at the eternal nature of Christ and his dominion. It's in this age and the one to come. What, what is that about? And then lastly, we'll look at God's power displayed on earth through the church. So I'm excited and I hope that you come back next week as we finish this great chapter and we'll make good application as we close this whole chapter together. But for this morning, I'd invite you to pray with me as we come to the Lord's table. Father, we do live in attention. We do live in a time where things around us are difficult to understand. We live in a time where hope can be something that kind of comes and goes from our perspective. But Father, my prayer for this church and for my own heart is that I would know the hope to which I have been called you would open our eyes, just like Paul prays here in Ephesians 1, Lord, that our eyes would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope that you have called us to, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power. As we live in this tension, God, give us grace. Give us grace to live with one another as we all have differing ideas and opinions and convictions, Father. Give us grace. And along with grace, give us strength. 
strength to stand against the attacks. We are not unaware of the devil's schemes. We know that he is a roaring lion who seeks to devour, and yet in Christ we can stand firm against him with the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that are equipped with the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, equip us with your armor to stand against these enemies. And we give you thanks and praise that they have been subjected and that one day they will be subjected to King Jesus. Give us strength in the meantime. I pray in Christ's name, amen.